hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause, and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, what's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. From the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, welcome to the Disaster Discussions podcast, where we explore the intersection of weather and the built environment. I'm your host, Armand Brody, and we have a great podcast episode in store for you folks today. I am joined by two of the finest hail experts in the continent. First of all, he is the lead research meteorologist and senior director for standards and data analytics, Dr. Ian Jamanko from right here at IBHS. We're also joined by Dr. Julian Brimelow, who is the executive director of the Northern Hail Project, Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. Gentlemen, I thank you both for joining us on episode two. We've got two episodes and we've got two guests on the Disaster Discussions podcast. Thank you both for being with me. You're welcome. All right, so so now, Julian, uh, Ian, Ian says you are the godfather of hail forecasting. Is this true? And if, wow. and if you have a nickname for Ian, please share it now. I don't. I feel bad. Um, that's very flattering, especially coming from someone <laughs> as respected as Ian. Um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I, I have been at this now for over 20 years. So, uh, yeah, I guess I do have a lot of experience in that arena. And uh, we're going to be the beneficiaries of your experience here as we as we motor along. Uh, Julian, I want to start with you because I want you to explain for our audience. Uh, you most recently joined Western University and this Northern Hill project. So describe the work you're doing as an executive director and describe how this came about and and uh, what this project entails. Right. So we're following on the coattails of the Northern Tornadoes Project, which was an initiative that was launched around about 2019. And uh, they've had great success with that project. You know, they, we were identifying tornadoes over Canada that would have gone unnoticed uh, previously. So after the success of that project, they wanted to expand their scope a bit. And that's when they brought in the Northern Hill project. And uh, I was very fortunate enough to be elected to lead that. And uh, we're still very new. Uh, we were launched in April of this year. 
So uh, it's still early days for us, but we're very excited. Uh, there's uh, quite ambitious goals that we have, and we intend to follow through on them. And uh, this year, we had our first pilot season in field season in central Alberta, and that was a immense success. And uh, we, ha we have so much data from that, we're not sure what to do with it. But uh, hopefully in the next year or so, we'll be hiring on uh, some grad students who can help you know, process all these data that we're collecting. You talked about some of the goals. I'm just curious, uh, what are maybe three, three to five uh, goals that you have for, for the project? Well, the first goal, um, long-term goal, is, is to increase the resiliency of communities across Canada to hail damage. It's a very costly problem. And, you know, for a long time now, that's, I wouldn't say been ignored, but it's kind of gone under the radar. And uh, we're, we're, that's our goal we're, we're, we're striving towards. But to get there, we have to jump through some other hoops. Uh, and one of them is, uh, is to develop a hail climatology for Canada, which is surprising to me non-existent. And um, we, we re, with, because without those data, without that climatology, it's very hard to do catastrophic modeling. It's very hard for the insurance industry. And, uh, you know, even if you're training algorithms or improving forecast products, you need, you know, high quality uh, ground truth data. So in creating this climatology, we'll be collecting a lot of ground truth data. So going to be data driven and uh, we'll, you know, be using those hail data to for a multitude of reasons. Ian, I want to turn to you. Uh, share the story of how you and Julian uh, came to know one another. So, so everybody, really, if you pay attention to the literature, knew, knew Julian from his work on the original Hailcast. Um, it's one of our forecast tools that we have out there for hail. Um, but uh, we first physically met going into the, the the very first hail workshop here in North America back in 2018. Uh, so I reached out to Julian as as wanting him to give our keynote to really look about at the challenges that that hail faces and what are what are the science uh, challenges and goals we really need to meet and then how do we bring all these different entities together to help solve them. Uh, later on, we, we, we got to go fly some hailstones in a vertical wind tunnel. So we got a picture of Julian flying in there. We all did it. Uh, myself, Julian, and Andy Heimsfeld from NCAR to test the concept. Can we put 3D printed hailstones in a vertical wind tunnel? And uh, I would say we probably uh, converse whether that's uh, through email or, or, or the Zoom box or all that fun stuff uh, fairly regularly now, especially as we really uh, ramp up in what is a renaissance for hail research and uh, headed toward uh, what we hope is uh, some future uh, field work and collaboration together. We're going to talk about that renaissance a bit later on, but I want to start and I want to stay with you, Ian. I want to ask you this question. Uh, we know that hail is the most common threat that thunderstorms bring. That's that's well-established and well-known, uh, especially by, by you two. But so much of the attention within research communities goes elsewhere, goes to hurricanes, goes to tornadoes. And it's almost like hail is the little brother way off in the background. Why is this? You know, I used to joke in presentations uh, across IBHS that hail was like the Rodney Danger field of the perils we face. It doesn't get any respect. Well, um, I don't think that's the case anymore. The financial impact is so significant um, that... The, the, we don't have that anymore. 
But if you look at hail, it's not necessarily a big threat to life safety. So you haven't seen the research dollars really go into it. And hurricanes are, are kind of our behemoth of, of perils. They, they affect large numbers of people, large numbers of structures. Um, so it's important. And, and there's a big economic wheel that goes with it. You know, think about what happens when you have to evacuate, you know, 200 miles of coastline. What's the economic impact of that? But as we've seen over the last two decades, hail, the losses just keep creeping up. Now, everybody in severe convective storms, we think tornadoes and the really big tornadoes are the ones that stand out in our mind. And they, and they still are a big threat to life safety. But as you look at the aggregate in terms of damage, hail in any given year is about 60 to 80% of the loss and damage that comes from severe thunderstorms every single year. And it's not just one hailstorm. It's if you combine 40, 50, 60, they just start piling up. And the next thing you know, you're looking at a whole season's worth of hail events and and you're, oh my goodness, this is a big deal. And it's only been growing as our structures have gotten bigger. We put more houses closer together, but our suburbs have kind of sprawled outward. The same same thing we deal with here in the States, Julian deals with in, in Canada. And our built environment, our building materials are not conditioned to take hail impacts regularly. Oh, no, I definitely agree uh, with everything Ian said. It's it's unfortunate that it's had to get to this point that people are paying attention to hail, but um, it is what it is. And uh, we intend to, you know, do our best to try and mitigate uh, the hail damage wherever we can. Obviously, you can't move crops, but there are a lot of things that we still can do, especially in the built environment. Uh, where we can mitigate the costs for, from hail. And it, yeah, it's not just the States. It's uh, globally in Australia, Europe, and uh, here up north in Canada as well. Pardon me for being so blunt with this question, but uh, I don't really know any other way to ask it. Is it really as simple, Ian, as hail doesn't kill people the way tornadoes and hurricanes do? so it doesn't get enough attention or hasn't gotten enough attention historically? Well, I mean, we, you know, I don't think so. Um, hail, you know, we talk about life and property. That That's really the weather enterprise, what we're dealing with. And uh, tornadoes are an absolute threat to, to life and property. And so are hurricanes, as we look at what just happened with Hurricane Ian and, and the storm surge element of that storm. But there's the property element that I think we've missed, and, and maybe some of it we felt we, it was just resigned that we can't we can't do much about this, and you know our forecasting's okay, and you know we think our warnings are you know they're just kind of okay, and but that was 20, 30, 40 years ago. We have so much more technology to actually tackle the problem now, but you put that with the trend in damage going up, and now you've got this really kind of concerning problem that's been unaddressed for the better part of, you know, in bulk, I mean, for, for quite a while. And that, that, that doesn't, that's not just the weather element. That's also the, the building standards that we use to test products for, for hail. We, we could spend a whole hour on that. But, but it's a problem that compounded itself while we almost put our head in the sand. Like, you know, it's, it's not the big deal. We got, we got bigger problems to fry with hurricanes and tornadoes and, and making sure people are taking the right sets of action. We just kind of ignored it. And then all of a sudden, basically over the last really 10 years or so, we just stare at the dollars and we're like, oh boy, um, we've, been, we've been overlooking something that may have been just hiding under our nose. Um, and with that said, you know, the insurance industry, we know, we know this. We've been staring at the dollars going up. 
with little in the way of, of mitigation and solutions at this point. Julian, you were quoted as saying, observing and forecasting hail, and Ian just talked about uh, talked about this a second ago. You said observing and forecasting hail is as difficult, if not more, uh, as forecasting tornadoes. What makes observing and forecasting hail so difficult? Well, there's a couple of things at play. Uh, some of them are the same as what you have to deal with with tornadoes. I mean, you've got to get the environment right. But what's really problematic with hail is just the sheer scale of what's happening. You know, when you have a tornado, um, say it's even a long track tornado, you're still dealing with one entity. And we're lucky enough that when that, you, you know, that tornado hits buildings or structures, we have very good ways through engineering of knowing how weak or strong it was. Uh, with hail, you know, in a typical hailstorm, you're looking at hundreds of billions of hailstones. Um, maybe up to a trillion, depending on how much hail is coming out of that long track storm. So, you know, if you're trying to predict the largest hail from that hailstorm, well, first of all, the chances of us actually observing it are virtually zero. Um, because you get into this, you know, I call it the singularity conundrum or dilemma where, okay, you find another big stone and you drive it all farther and you find another big stone, but <clears throat> it's going to be impossible to find the biggest stone. So, Trying to predict that obviously is incredibly difficult. And the other problem we have is, you know, just documenting it properly. Uh, that's also incredibly difficult just because of the, the, the sheer scope of it. I mean, this summer we had students out in the field and they were able to traverse the hail swath in a couple of locations, but still then you're looking at point measurements, you know, maybe a few square meters. And, um, you know, it, 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 th that's really the biggest challenge. That's one of the, the, what I was referring to with that statement is the enormity of it. Julian, I want to ask you this because at the aforementioned workshop Ian shared with us earlier, you had a lecture, you gave a lecture on bridging knowledge gaps in hailstorm and hail research. This was back in 2018. Could you just sort of give us a, a little bit more meat on the bone of what you shared and why you shared what you shared at that workshop for our audience? Right. Yeah, that was a few years ago now, but I think a lot of the gaps we spoke to back then are still in play today. Um, you know, w with there being very little attention paid to hail in the last, you know, couple of decades, it's meant that there's no been no real advance in the field in terms of uh, science and understanding. And luckily now, there, in recent years, there has been a resurgence. But for example, um, we only have one vertical wind tunnel in the world in, in Germany that one can use for hail, but one can't really fly very big hail in that, in, in that wind tunnel. And um, we, we have tools now at our disposal that we didn't have 30, 40 years ago. So we can, if we were to go back to the lab and redo some of those experiments that the pioneers did, we will be able to better quantify um, and deal with some of these nuanced details of, you know, how much water has been shed by hail, how thick is the water film on a hailstone, um, you know, and, and a lot of these aspects that previously, I'd say we had relatively crude, crude ways of doing things. And the other thing is, for example, fall speed. Uh, I've spoken to cloud microphysicists who've been surprised when they hear from me that fall speed of hail is very poorly constrained. And uh, the work that Ian's done with Andy Hainsfield and others has, has spoken to this. I mean, the, the range of values is, is, is quite uh, uh, impressive. But now, for example, we can drop uh, 
not real hailstones, but we can use 3D scans of stones, make molds and drop those. Uh, and, you know, from a UAV and measure the fall speed of them using a, a little radar that's the size of a credit card. It's called the continuous waveform radar. And we've had good successes past summer testing that. And, and the, there's, so we have the theoretical gaps uh, that we've had. Uh, also, like I said, with the, the lab work, there's gaps there because we don't have the right facilities. That's one of the reasons why we're trying to fly these. We're not trying to. We, we were flying these uh, printed hailstones in an iFly uh, vertical wind tunnel uh, because we don't have access to a wind tunnel in North America right now. And um, there's, there's gaps in, in how we you know, look at the, the forecasting of hail. Uh, there's knowledge gaps there. Some of, the, some of the things we've been doing are very antiquated. And you know, with the advent of machine learning, we can now maybe consider variables and combination of variables that you know, until now we hadn't taken seriously or hadn't considered. Um, I'm not saying what the machine learning finds, you know, it has to be physically based and defensible. You can't just take any random variable and get the answer, but it, it might open up some new avenues for us. And some of the work being done by John Allen and uh, Cameron Nixon on looking more at the, uh, you know, the, the, the wind flow around these thunderstorms has shown to become increasingly important. And uh, Matt Kumjian, another colleague, has done some really excellent modeling work uh, that's supports this idea that we, we hail's not all about how strong your updrafts are um uh, you know that that's a necessary condition but it's not sufficient to get really big hail you can have relatively moderate uh, buoyancy in the atmosphere and still generate big hail if, if the wind conditions are right so th there's all these aspects that we you know uh, need to start revisiting and looking at again ian i want to ask you we've talked quite a bit in our time together so far about forecasting and maybe there are some places where where we've missed it maybe there are some places within in the property insurance industry where we've missed it is that the case and, and where have we missed it if it is so so i think it it all plays into the role there, there's two elements here there's quantifying the current state of hail risk which is observing hail very well being able to look at what is the probability of an event occurring at a given location um, during the course of a year. Um, that in turn leads you into how you might want to design for any hazard, right? It could be wind, it, it, you know, hail, we're talking hail today. But that's what we've kind of lacked. And, and it's, some of it's been driven by our, our observations weren't great. Julian mentioned it. We, we don't observe hail that well. We probably underrepresent the risk as a whole. And that's some of the challenges that we actually face there on the here and now. The next piece of the puzzle is understanding the environments in a, in a better way so we can take this into the future scenario looking at the climate change element. So we can, we can understand the environments that are producing hail in far better detail now than we could 30, 40 years ago, which in turn leads us to be able to, to take this information, use it within climate modeling. You know, kind of the, the trendy word is downscaling. Victor Gensini from Northern Illinois is leading the way in this kind of stuff for hail is how do you get down to that small scale environment that you can discern, okay, this would typically produce X kind of hail or, or whatever flavor of hail you want. And, and the more we know, the more detail we can put into that kind of downscaling work and gain a more comprehensive understanding of what the picture of hail and hailstorms may be in the future. So there's a lot there that, that pertains to a lot of us and how we deal with the risk 
that comes with hailstorms every single year. So we gotta we gotta have a proper understanding of the the, the hail climate, and then look at what are the environments uh, and how that's going to change in the future. So we gotta observe it better, and we gotta understand all the nuance about what's going on around those storms. Um, and it's a big challenge, right? This is a big deal. These these storms are. Um, one, they're hard to sample. Um, they present their own challenges in field experiments. And, um, but, but I think the science world, we're up for it, and technology is absolutely caught up. Good. Uh, hail produces losses in excess of $10 billion per year in the United States. Julie, I'm going to come to you second with, with your numbers. Uh, according to uh, the Institute for Catastrophic Loss, Re Re Loss Reduction, about $400 million annually uh, in Canada there. You can correct me in a second if I got that off. But uh, Ian, what's driving these numbers, $10 billion? I don't know if a lot of people even have really grasped that or really understand that. What's, what's driving $10 billion per year in losses connected with hail? Well, one of the biggest reasons is simply that we like to use asphalt shingles here on our roofs. Um, that's the predominant roof cover here in the United States and in Canada. We're the only really continent that does that. You won't see the prevalence of asphalt shingles in, in, in Europe. Um, and asphalt shingles are not well designed to withstand hail impacts in large numbers or any kind of size. Um, they just don't, um, plain and simple. There, there's that element. The next piece is that our communities are simply expanding outward. So the, we can call this the bullseye effect. And Stephen Strader and Walker Ashley are the two that really coined this. But we're, our targets are bigger, right? You make your dartboard bigger, it's easy to hit. So there's that element. But also kind of what's buried in there is our homes actually got larger, but the amount we put in the same surface area increased. So our homes got bigger, and we put more of them in the same block of land. So we peaked out in about you know 2015 in, in, in median home size of, of 2,500 square foot. In the United States, we're on a you know a decline now, and some of that has to do with market forces, but that is an awful lot of material that has to get replaced. So think about areas around, say, Dallas, Fort Worth, or, or east of Denver. Ten years ago, these places were simply farmland or, or open ranch land. Now they're very dense subdivisions with large homes, which means a lot of material that gets replaced when a hailstorm happens. So it's routine now, you take a big hailstorm, run it over a major metro, you're gonna cause a billion dollars worth of damage for sure. But then you aggregate all of these over an entire season and all those roofs that have to get replaced and are getting replaced leads to the big dollar numbers. And then throw in you know, auto, the, the wall cover, but a lot of this is driven at the roof level and roof replacement. And we just got more material that we have to replace these days. So. Is it as simple as asphalt shingles equals bad? <laughs> well, you know, us at IBHS, we, we have our opinions there, but th this comes down to the fact that we are not building with this hazard in mind. Now, with that said, there are good performing products out there, and we can actually get into that a, a little bit is to, to how some of the work we've done at IBHS in testing impact rated products has helped change the marketplace for the better. The manufacturers have made changes to get more resilient products, but those have to find their way onto people's roofs for us to make a difference here. Um, so it's not all bad. It's just the problem that 20, 30 years of building a given way 
has led us to this point where we simply just didn't think about it. And I want to make one one particular point that, that Fort Collins, Colorado, right now, the only city in the United States that has a hail provision in its building code. Now, building codes are thought, you know, it's to protect life safety from given hazards. But if you look at the other weather-related perils, mostly driven by um, fire and wind, we have code provisions out there. Hail, we really don't. Fire's still kind of lagging. But wind, we've done a tremendous amount of work over really the last 30 years to change how we build structures to keep them more intact, um, not only protecting property, but the life safety element as well. Hail didn't have as much threat to life safety, but we're causing damage to that exterior envelope just repeatedly. And it's so much stuff that's got to get replaced. Then it goes into landfills and we're, there's nothing green about that. And you have the nuisance that comes with just this constant replacement of roof. Talk to anybody in Dallas or Oklahoma City that's on maybe their third roof in 10 years. Mm -hmm. It is not a fun process and nobody wants to do it. And it's it's becoming so annoying that you even see in Dallas where there's hail in the forecast, people go run outside, put pool noodles on their car just to try to, they're, they're just done with it, right? It, it's such a big nuisance. Um, people I think are looking at us as, as now's the time we got to do something about this. We need a solution for this. Julian, Julian, I'm going to come to you, but I, I want to keep driving down this road with Ian because you just talked about Fort Collins, Colorado. Is that a sign of things to come? Is Are there more Fort Collinses in the near future? Are we encouraged by the fact that they've made this requirement or are we years down the road before we see more changes? It's a very good question. Um, Fort Collins, one of the motivations was, one, they had just come off a big hail event when this got put into to, to practice. But they also decided one of their, they have a very green building initiative. And part of it was simply not putting that kind of material, that mass material into landfills repeatedly due to exposure to hail. So there's two elements here. There's the, we want to, to mitigate the, the impacts of things, especially those that are fresh in our mind, right? Humans, we got, you know, we struggle with, you know, we forget that a bad event can happen, mm. um, but they realized something bad happened. They wanted to take an action, but also the green building movement. As, as we look at more energy efficient homes, we also have to remember the resilience element and making sure we're not dumping those same materials back in the landfills just because they really, we didn't think about how they should be put together to withstand all the weather related perils, not just hail. So that was what Fort Collins did. I honestly don't know if that's in the future. Um, one of the big steps that we are seeing is, is movement and improving test standards. Um, we've done a lot of work at IBHS on this. We've seen movement in the consensus space, the ASTM world. Um, we've seen underwriters laboratory increase the frequency in which they test product. That's step number one, is getting good testing in place for products that can be done at, at all sorts of facilities, both not just at IBHS, but out in the commercial space. And then that opens the door to being able to codify things, knowing that we have good tests, of good repeatability, and now all the all the products are on a level playing field, right? And we can show to the, the public, to consumers, you and all of us, that here's the range of products. Make a good decision. You have good information to make a good choice. But right now, uh, you know, the past 20, 30 years, we, you know, consumers haven't had that. It just haven't hasn't existed, unfortunately. Julian, to you, What's driving, we just talked about what's driving uh, these numbers in the United States. What about Canada? Very similar uh, situation, I think. You know, with Canada being such a, a large country, um, we have a lot of urban sprawl. I mean, we're a very urban population in Canada. 
and uh, a lot more people moving to the cities. And like I said, so there's a lot of space, so there tends to be a lot of sprawl. And the, the, the building industry, in my opinion, hasn't kept up with, with uh, the technology and with, with some of the findings that people like IBHS have been finding in terms of not only roofing, but even siding. Uh, there's a lot of vinyl siding here uh, in Canada. And for a city of Calgary to have, you know, all these thousands of houses with vinyl siding when it's such a hill prone area, you know, you, you have to wonder wh why that still is and why we're not trying to change that. And I, I think a lot of it, like Ian was saying, is just people don't necessarily know there's better options or they're worried about the costs. But, you know, if you look at the research for every dollar invested in mitigation or resilience, the payback's two or three times higher than that. And that's a, cons that's a conservative number. You can get much higher paybacks or savings uh, th th than that. And um, but yeah, I mean, the short story is there's it, very similar things playing out here. Uh, we're just, you know, not growing quite as fast. So we, it's not as we don't have as big a population, but we're seeing the same things that you're seeing down in the States. Let's go back to 2017 for a moment in 22 billion dollars in losses in the United States connected to to hail. Was that a turning point for hail research? What about 2017 was different for research and in the research space, if anything at all? I, you know, I, I don't know if we can point to a specific year. Now, that was a big hail year. We had, I believe, a, a San Antonio hail event. We had multiple events across that 2017 through 19 in Denver. 2018 was a big year in the front range of, of Colorado. Um, and then before that, 2013-14, Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, you could just sit and rattle them off. Um, but I think some of this, and I want to give a really big shout out to some great young scientists out there that have taken this world of hail and started to run with it. They found it interesting, scientifically inquisitive, because we have a lot of unknowns that are out there. And as scientists, we want to explore the unknown. Um, some of weather, you know, we can, I don't want to get too, we can think of ourselves, we, we are exploring a lot of things that are still unknown out there in the atmosphere. And that, it, I think it's an interesting problem. So we had a great group of younger scientists. I, I, I want to believe I was in that group in the, in the mid-career space. I don't know anymore. Um, but all these, you know, this, this cluster of people who actually decided that we were going to kind of all collaborate together um, just started to ramp up. And I want to believe at IBHS, we, we played a role in just elevating the view of the hazard again. You know, we hadn't had a major field campaign in the United States. There was a multi-agency one since the late 1970s. And we kind of mired in this kind of malaise era of, of hail research till the, the you know, past 2010. And, and some of that, you know, we'd, we'd poked at it. And Julian was, that's why I kind of call him one of the godfathers or, 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 of this kind of work. Um, we poked at it and we were starting to get ramp it up. And, and at IBHS, our goal, one of our goals in the program was simply just raise the visibility of this hazard. The insurance industry asked us to do this when, when our research center opened. And we just took it and ran with it, trying to elevate the view that hail is a problem, it is growing, and we're not really tackling it the way we are some of the other uh, specific wind-related perils for sure. Uh, I think fire is another comparison of, of early, you know, we're in the early stages of really taking new technology and science to bring to bear on wildfires. Um, hey, well, I think maybe we've actually run past it, but 
I want to just believe the right set of circumstances came about to lead to this kind of renaissance in, in Hale research. And it's, it's been wonderful to watch. The advances that are, that are ongoing right now, I think, are going to make a, a big, big impact over the next decade to come. Ian, I want to stay with you, and I want to ask you to, just to give our audience a little bit more of, a, of an understanding of the investment that you, your wife, Dr. Tanya, Brown Jamanko, who is now at the uh, at NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. Uh, just give our audience a sense of what IBHS has done over the past decade plus and how IBHS has led the way in Hale research. So so one of our our real goals, it was a very strategic thought, is is one, how do we how do we improve how building materials are tested for hail? That that's how you're going to change the marketplace in terms of getting better materials on people's homes and businesses. Step number one. Then you start working the science underneath it. It's like, what do we need to know to be able to do that? And and Tanya really, as we developed the program, complemented each other. I, sometimes I consider myself like the crazy scientist, you know, at IBHS, the the really kind of wild idea guy. And Tanya was really helpful in reining me in. I know Julian's seen touches of this. Armand, you've been around me long enough to know that. Um, but Tanya could constrain it into things we could actually do in the practical elements of those wild ideas. Um, and so we just started going. Um, one of the thoughts was, you know, just we never quantified how strong hailstones were. And as we've seen in the lab, the strength changes the dynamic or the, 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 the modes of impact the dynamics of an impact. And that in turn leads to a different type of damage. So how do we do that? So it's like, okay, well in the concrete world, we actually just go crush concrete and measure the amount of force to fracture. It's like, well, why can't we do that for hail? Well, it turns out, you know, Texas Tech tried, but the technology wasn't quite there for great field work. Um, we had both come off of our careers in graduate school at Texas Tech doing all sorts of field programs. I pretty much stuck my nose in every single one I could. Um, and I believe field research and laboratory work goes hand in hand. Um, so we just took it and ran with it and figured out what we had to engineer in the lab from an ice production perspective. How do we change the test programs? And all along the way, you know, I think Tanya met Matt Cumgen at a conference and said, hey, we're doing this. And Matt's like, oh, I'm doing this. Let's go. And then, of course, I met Julian over time, um, Victor Gensini, John Allen. I can just sit here and rattle Becky Adams Seelan. All these folks are a cluster of really good scientists, and we all just decided we were going to tackle it. Let's just go. And sure enough, you know, we've seen this resurgence show up, and I think it's going to pay dividends to it, and not only in the foundational work, but also the products and services that come out of it. So that's something that the insurance industry is going to care about. This knowledge is going to make its way there and change that picture. So uh, it's been an awful fun ride, and I hope it keeps going as we really start to turn the knobs, and I think we're going to make some pretty good progress over the next couple of decades to come because of that foundational work. Very encouraging. Now, now, Julian, I know that you were recently with two of IBHS's scientists and um, you guys were scanning some hail. Did I get that right? Sure. Tell me about that. That's right. That's right. Um, just want to start off by saying that IBHS, they've been fantastic partners. We've learned a lot from them. And we continue to learn from them. And they've been so generous with their time and their resources. So this year, <clears throat> excuse me, when we had the rec new record hailstone that fell in uh, Alberta, um, we wanted to preserve that and uh, the other hailstones that we collected that day. So IBHS uh, flew up 
uh, two folks and, uh, you know, they, they spent a whole day, uh, documenting and scanning these hailstones for us. So now we have a, a 3D scan of, of the, uh, record hailstone in Canada. Uh, it's, I'm told by the interns who collected them that they actually found larger hail out there. Uh, one of them dropped one of the stones in their rush to get back to the vehicle. So what you one just has to wonder how big could it have been that day? Um, you know, it's, uh, this was by no means the biggest hailstone that fell that day, but it was still very impressive and impressive enough to break a record that was set early in the, in the 1970s over Saskatchewan, which is a sister province to the, to the east of us. And they have much juicier environments there and they're known for very big hail. So for us to find this hailstone in central Alberta, you know, you're over a thousand meters above sea level. Um, it tends to be drier. We don't, you know, we don't have the really juicy air. And for us to record this new hailstone there was just amazing. Want to give some love to Christina Gropp and Ross Maiden, who were our two great minds right. from IBHS, who spent some time with you, Julian. They shot up and they came straight. <laughs> they came straight back, but all for the for the good of <laughs> science, which is what we do here at IBHS. Uh, Julian, let's let's stay with you. Let's talk about this resurgence. Ian used the word renaissance. We've used the word resurgence. What's been the key to this resurgence in hail research? I don't know if I can add much to what Ian said. You know, it started small and it's been snowballing. Um, I think what part of what's been instrumental is the work that IBHS has been doing. Um, shifting the focus to developing new industry standards, to actually testing the products out there giving, you know, and that's raised our knowledge. And then we started having these workshops and conferences. And, you know, that, that's a great way to, you know, talk about new ideas and run with them and find collaborators. And, uh, you know, it, it's not just what's so nice about it. It's not just being this little clique of people. Um, at our most recent workshop in Boulder about a month ago, we had people from Australia, uh, China, Europe, Europe is very well presented. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that was very exciting. And, uh, you know, like I said, it just keeps gaining momentum. Ian, I know you were also at that workshop uh, back in late September. What takeaways can you share? Well, I think Julian hit it is the global representation was was amazing. And one of my favorite things about uh, this our, our two workshops now is we, we cut across all fields, you know, while we had at the first one, you know, the dominant representation was academic and research. Guess what was a very, very close second was our insurance risk industry. And I love that, that we can put the folks in, from the practitioner world, and that even includes the, for, the forensic engineering world, the, all the parts of the weather enterprise, not just researchers in the same room and talk about hail. And it's all like-minded, you know, we all care about it in our different ways. And I think that helped cut through some of the noise or maybe the si broke down the silos that maybe the traditional research environment experiences. So we got to listen to each other. That's a big part of this. And it's, it's, it's just interesting. Maybe Hale's just becoming more cool. I want to believe it is. But um, it was a great experience for me to see the cross-section across the weather enterprise and um, as well as the students. When you can get the students involved, they energize everybody. And um, 
it, it's been two good workshops. The European community is going to be on their fourth. So we're trying to make sure we're represented well with the Europeans, uh, our colleagues over there who have done a wonderful job. They, they have just as big a hail problem, if not more, if you think about the population density across uh, France, Germany, Switzerland, uh, Austria, like that area, even even you know parts of Italy, those kinds of things, their population densities are higher than what we have. Well, they don't is see the behemoth hail or, or gargantuan, maybe I'll use Matt Cumden's term or, or giant, or we can, we can throw them all out there that we do here in, in North America. Um, and we also see this in South America too. I should throw that out there. They have a population density problem that, that leads to skyrocketing losses. And actually I should mention this year, 2020 has been um, a fairly high year for injuries and a few fatalities from hail, which, which in the past we considered them quite rare. Unfortunately, across the globe this year, we, we have seen a fair number of hail injuries. One of the, the big ones was uh, Australia had some folks injured in vehicles. Um, I've seen a few injury reports out of Spain. I know an infant was killed this year in a, in a hailstorm. So it's a global problem. We had it represented, and we try to bring everybody from all stakeholders um, to talk about it and what can we do. So I think at the next one, we're even going to think about some needs working groups like can we can we split up everybody and, and make a nice mix and talk about now we've got this resurgence in work what do we all need what are the things that each sector needs from each other to help keep this momentum going we have just a few more moments left uh, but i have a couple of questions if we can get them in uh, i want to ask about the ice chip campaign and its significance and Ian, I want to start with you. You can give us, uh, tell us what that stands for. Uh, but I uh, just want to set the table for you to give us a little meat on the bone relative to the Ice Chip campaign. Yeah, so the, the Ice Chip project, it's an acronym for a very large field campaign. It's in situ of collection of hail in the Great Plains. It's, that's, if you spell it all out, you can get to Ice Chip. We all thought that was kind of funny. And I guess you, in, in these big multi-agency field projects, if you don't have an acronym, it's not going to be any good or something like that. Um, but this is a project that a lot of us came together and decided this was the right time to go ahead and propose. Um, there has not been a major field campaign dedicated to hail since the National Hail Research Experiment in the late 1970s. And the focus of, of the NHRE program was actually looking at weather modification. It was a lot of cloud seeding work. Could we actually physically change the environments to produce less hail as a mitigation method? Across the board from weather modification, we've turned back toward mitigation and forecasting. You know, can we can we forecast it and can we mitigate the damage as well as opposed to necessarily trying to turn the physical mobs of the environments that these storms are in? But there was great science that came out of that. You know, you know, we're talking you know fifty, you know, fifty years ago now, um, or almost fifty years ago, um, and our foundational work for hail emerged from that. But we had this long period of time where. We just didn't tackle it. We, we've done multiple field campaigns on tornadoes. I mean, they're, you know, seemingly now we've got some variety of project every few years or so, but we haven't turned our attention to hail. Yeah, there's been nuggets that have come out of it. In IBHS, we've had our field program. Julian started their field program, but we haven't brought all the capability to bear, and that's what this project hopefully will do. Uh, it is in the proposal phase um, to the National Science Foundation, but there was a large number of participants, large number of entities, and it would be the first. 
um, multi-agency campaign since that national hail research experiment to solely focus on hail storms. And uh, we believe the time is right. I'll, I'll turn it, I'll send it to Julian to kind of just take it a little bit further. Um, he's part of this. We're all together in this. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it hopefully, fingers crossed that, that this happens. Julian. Uh, yeah, it would be, I mean, it's once in a generation uh, possibility here. And it's been longer than a generation. And in Canada, we similar to in the States, our last program wraps up in the early 80s, and that was focused again with seeding. And, uh, but now we can shift the focus. As much as good science they did do then, uh, we can now shift the focus to, to you know, other, you were talking about gaps earlier. One of the gaps is we can now predict the presence of hail and thunderstorms quite well using dual polarization radar. You know, we know there's hail in the storm. But what we still can't do very well is, you know, how much hail is there is it a lot of big stones or uh just a few big stones or a lot of small hail so we really need to develop tools to help us uh just differentiate between the amount of hail in the storms and also the size so that even on that alone would be a huge advancement but it's going to be a very exciting project if it gets funded technology has advanced so much um we've got some great tools in the field now that we, that we can use some of them developed by ibhs and, and others and uh, yeah we just like Ian said, fingers crossed it gets funded because it'll be a great opportunity for everybody. We've sort of touched on it throughout our time here, but Julian, I want to ask you, because you shared this even back at the 2018 workshop, what is the best, the best path forward for a more coordinated approach to hail research? Well, when I finished that talk up in, in 2018, I think my last slide had this road, curvy road, and at the end of that road was a field program. So I, I think ICEP is a big step in, in that direction. And uh, it's going to solidify the science. It's going to bring the best brains together. And I don't want to get lost in this is the students. You know, we'll be training the next generation of scientists. And they're, they're young, they're keen, they're curious. And that's something we really hope to foster and, you know, lift them up and, and uh, have these new scientists go out and uh, share their knowledge. So for me, that would be a big win is if we can do that. Ian, I'll close with this. Why should we be encouraged and why are we encouraged about the future of hail research, tracking hail and hail mitigation going forward? Yeah, you know, we've, we've touched elements of it. It's this this renaissance with this great grassroots group that not is it's not just academic research it's it's the whole weather enterprise that cares about it, it it's it's even the folks that develop the the secondary products that come out of these that even serve our insurance industry it's it's the various pieces and parts it's the engineering it's the the manufacturers one of the things I, i've said this I, I was really pessimistic as to whether or not roofing manufacturers would move the bar when we released our first set of testing orders. Well, I was proven completely wrong. They did it, which tells me this can happen. This momentum can continue. And we're applying this across the board, forecasting, detection, the risk in climatology, and the mitigation building element. And as Julian mentioned, that last part of his road back in 18 was the field campaign to help basically do what a lot of us in the small field programs have done over chunks of years. We're going to, we may 
do more in two years in a, a multi-agency campaign that we will have done in eight years in the field at IBHS. It's just the technology, the resources, the people bringing that to bear. So it makes me wonder, have, we've, we've checked off some boxes along that road. Now it's let's execute these kinds of things so we can take this comprehensive information back to the laboratory space, back to the modeling world, and then see what happens afterwards. So um, the people who are in it are, are in it in it to win it. <laughs> um, I think we all have a kind of a passion for what has become a um, kind of a unique place to sit. And um, I want to say we all get along really well, and, and I believe that. And um, and I think that's part of it. We have some good relationships that we've built across all these sectors, which means information can be taken and used much, much faster. So I, I am very encouraged, um, and I think I think we will see this. Now, the hard part is, can we go faster than our sprawl growth problems in our building uh, material world? Can we, it's a race now. Can we take this information spin it up faster and actually start knocking the top off the loss curve, which means we've stopped the trend. I don't know, but we're going to find out. Okay. I know from being around you, Ian, how passionate you are about hail and hail research. And for our members who are listening or watching this, if you've been around Ian for any length of time, hail will come up. And we just most recently had one of our disaster dynamics academies. And sure enough, uh, Ian was there to uh, to sermonize about the importance of hail research and asphalt shingles and all that is connected with that. So I know your passion and uh, I know that passion is also shared by Julian. So I want to thank you both, Dr. Ian Jamanko, our lead research, uh, lead research meteorologist here at IBHS, and Dr. Julian Brimelow, who is the executive director of the Northern Hill Project of Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. Thank you both for being with us on the Disaster Discussions podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety Facebook at facebook.com slash disaster safety and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast and more, visit IBHS.org.